Untitled Beatles podcast. Look at these. Look at that. So you're in your hand, yeah. you're holding two copies of uh, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Uh, what's the difference? One's in black and white and one's in color. Well, one you listen to for the first 10 minutes of Wizard of Oz, and the second <laughs> one you listen to, and by the way, Judy Garland, um, hey, uh, are we rolling? Are we, are, we on? I'm rolling, is this, yeah. <laughs> is, is it rolling, Bob? Obscure Bob Dylan reference for those of you who are Nashville Skyline fans. Hey, it's the Untitled Beatles podcast, and uh, we have a special, it's going to be a long one, so strap it in, strap it up, strap it in, buckle up, because we get into, we've been, cho- we've been joking for months about this. Today is part one of Bad Boy. Once again, there's been a huge mix-up. Uh, T.J. Shanoff. Yes, Tony Mendoza? <laughs> it's the 50th anniversary of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. This is a great record, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm going to disagree. Uh, as a Harrison solo album, it's okay. You go Gontropo first. You go <laughs> Electronic Sound 2, and then Extra Texture, and everything else is just... Uh, extra Texture is so flimsy. Side 2 opens with a reprise of You. Yeah. And it's called A Bit More of You. A Bit More like, of You. Guy, but, uh-huh. Well, now hold on, because he did the same thing with this record, with the... Uh... Isn't it a pity? He does have an isn't it a pity reprise. And let me get my thesis out for a moment here. (laughs) I believe, because we're going to deal with another 50th anniversary release coming up later in the year, and that's the 50th anniversary of the Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. I believe the order of the greatest solo Beatles albums ever released, one is Plastic Ono Band, and two is All Things Must Pass. And there it is. It is dragged down by the unnecessary bonus disc, not bonus disc, the third album, the Apple Jam that we'll get into, I'm sure, as we go. Um, and a few elements of fat, including the It's a Pity reprise and one or two other songs. But I think song for song, there are few, no other album in the Harrison catalog and few in any of the solo Beatles where the quality of songs and the quality of playing and production is as sublime and gorgeous. I agree. This is a great record. It's definitely, honestly, I think personally, I prefer Ram to this record, but that's me. I get, I think that this All Things Must Pass is a perhaps a more important record, if you will. I think it's a, it's a deeper record and I just prefer Ram. That's just me. I just like the songs and tunes on Ram because that's who I am. But well, and you're also like your McCartney thing runs deep. Like we've talked off the air a ton about how you prefer Pipes of Peace to Imagine. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite comments we had that did not make air was you arguing point by point how much better Press to Play was then all things must pass. And I think you change your mind eventually when I played you the remix of Move Over Busker. All right. <laughs> Enough of this. I do love Press to Play. Pipes of Peace, I'm not quite sure of how I feel about Pipes of Peace. Um, 
but yeah, this I, I get it, and I love Ram too. With McCartney, it's so difficult for me to pick a favorite McCartney album because there's so many, and they all mean so much. And there's Ram and Band on the Run and Flaming Pie and Flowers in the Dirt and Tug of War. There's so many great McCartney albums. The tricky thing about this, and we're really going to plow into this, you're so great with detailing the history of this, of all the albums that we do, um, but the one thing I would say is George Harrison, whose career was wonderful, never reached greater heights than this album. John Lennon, I mean, I, listen, I prefer Plastic Ono Band to Imagine, but Imagine was a far bigger runaway hit. Um, there's no George Harrison album that comes close to what he did with this. It's almost like Stevie Wonder's... Um, songs in the Key of Life. Songs in the Key of Life, the the double album that had so many songs, they had the extra EP on it with um, Ebony Eyes and a few other great songs on that, the, the bonus record. It yeah. came with the bonus 45, but Stevie yeah, cool. got so much out that one could argue, and God bless Hotter Than July and In Square Circles got some fine moments, but Stevie Wonder could never reach the heights of songs in the key of life. I think that this is the case with George Harrison, and it's one of the reasons this album is so important and so seminal in the solo Beatles catalog, Tony. It was the it's his first proper solo album. He had put out two other records prior to this, Wonderwall Music in 1968, uh which is kind of cool, actually. If you, it's it's hard to find, but I think it's streaming. You can now just listen to it. It used to be a real kind of a crate digger thing. What'd you call me? <laughs> crate. Yeah, I digger. wear sweats and get on my knees at Reckless. <laughs> you want to call me crate digger? To my hey, crate digger. <laughs> Terrible <laughs> phrase. I, I have the worst thing is I used to to go to Reckless before gigs. The one on North Avenue, or not? Excuse me, it was on uh, Milwaukee. The Wicker Park one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Wicker Park one, just a little bit uh, south of North Avenue. And I would go before Second City gigs sometimes, and I'd wear my suit, and I would show up to Second City with, like, filthy pants. Hashtag filthy pants. Because I'd be down on my knees digging through 45s. So, yes, I am a crate digger, and I miss... This is an a, a, a parenthetical thought, Tony, but the one thing I miss so much about the pandemic, it's the longest I've gone in my entire life without going to a record store. Record stores are solace for me. The day after Trump won in 2016, I spent that whole day at Vintage Vinyl in Evanston, just blazed. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, record stores in general all my life have always kind of been like my favorite place to go. And I haven't been to one since probably January, February. So, yes, I'm a crate digger and I fucking miss it. <laughs> I've only been to one record store since the pandemic on my road trip out to, I had some work in the, in the Midwest in Chicago and I stopped in a town in Texas that, uh, and I, what did I buy there? I bought, Oh, I bought stars on 45. That's right. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. On vinyl, right? <laughs> yeah. I've got the LPs. I've got stars on mm -hmm. stars on long play, the Beatles one. And then there's like number three where they do like all stone songs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I put it on the other day. Tried to play a board game to it and could not play a board game. We couldn't, <laughs> couldn't fucking concentrate. <laughs> you gotta beat the clock. You gotta beat the clock. The 
these Swedish guys. One day we're doing Stars on 45 because that 45, literally, I wore out as a kid. And, that's, oh, that's and it funny. was so confusing because that 45 includes Sugar Sugar, not a Beatles song. And it's all Beatles songs except they throw in Sugar Sugar by the Archies. But one of these episodes, <laughs> we'll get into that. Let's get back to George Harrison. Yeah. Um, do you want to kind of front this album, its release, its significance? Yeah. You're so good at that. <laughs> Here's the facts. So it's a triple album, right? This is the first triple album from like a rock act. Uh, the Woodstock triple LP had come out prior to this. But obviously that's various acts, et cetera. So this is the first time a solo performer had done this. And this album does not have Shanana on it, as opposed to the Woodstock. <laughs> no, but it's got <laughs> but it's got 20 other bands in it. Yes, it does. <laughs> Derek and the Dominoes, Every Bad Finger. Every band in the 70s. <laughs> uh, sure, Delaney and Bonnie, they're all on this album, yeah. but not Shanana. <laughs> Bowser, shut the fuck up for a minute. Blue. <laughs> Yeah, but they were doing like backflips on stage. They were insane, that group. They were pretty crazy, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it came out November 27th, 1970, so nearly 50 years ago. Phil Spector is the producer on this, or at least he, he produced it till he broke his arm. You get the credit, right. <laughs> and so it was basically, it was a collaboration between Phil and George. And it is, uh, like I said, there's a lot of people that play on this record. Someone at the time compared it to a Cecil B. DeMille cast. I also call it a murderer's row because it it features two murderers. Yeah, a couple (laughs) literal killers on this. Yeah, Phil Spector and then uh, drummer Jim Gordon, who uh, had a uh, schizophrenic episode in 1983 and murdered his mother. Also, Mal Evans plays on it, who is a murder victim, and then, you know, the guy's in Bad Finger. So there's a dark <laughs> element. And George himself, and you're leaving out one other murderer. I, I don't mean to, oh, I don't mean I to leave steal out? your thunder. Phil Collins murdered a lot of music in the 80s, <laughs> and Phil Collins is playing unmixed congas, I think, on Art of Dying. <laughs> yep, so, yep. Yeah, and uh, Phil, Phil Collins <laughs> murdered Eric Clapton's career. Oddly enough, it all came full circle when Behind the Sun and some other 80s, like, all of a sudden, Eric Clapton albums had do 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 goom 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 Fuck you, Phil Collins. <laughs> that's a good drum, Phil. I've, that's a good song. The rest of it is garbage, like... The rest of it's garbage, but that's a good song, don't you think? Yeah, that's a decent song. I'm more partial to his totally perfunctory cover of You Can't Hurry Love. Oh, God, I forgot about that. What are you doing, Phil? Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Yeah, I forgot about that. Unnecessary. Well, and you, again, different strokes for different folks. You have always loved the theme to Against All Odds. (laughs) I actually have. How can I just walk (laughs) away from me and let you... (laughs) I actually have that soundtrack on LP. <laughs> I don't know why. So, for real, my friend Dan gave it to me. I think as a gag when I, we were in high school. Like I was, I've had so I've had that since I was seventeen. It's in the A's. It's next to ACDC and Air Supply. <laughs> you don't sort soundtracks and shows differently. You've changed. I actually do. You're right. I don't know. What, okay, we stop the show. What does a mint against all odds soundtrack go for on the original Atlantic pressing? I'm going to say thirty nine cents. <laughs> I was going to say dollar thirty. Yeah, right? okay. as much as a Billy Ripken fuckface card goes for. Now. <laughs> And Cal Ripken, too. <laughs> Fuck you. You played for 20 years. Who cares? 
All right. One of these days we're going to get back on track. But so a thousand people played on this record. It was the Phil Spector wall of sound, or as I like to say, bang your head against the wall of sound. Uh, (laughs) Honestly, I think it's, it's the reason why I don't listen to this record as much as I should. It's a great record, but the, for me, the production gets in the goddamn way. I really wish somebody would invent some kind of plug-in. We've got all this studio technology. Can we invent a plug-in that takes away reverb <laughs> from those master tracks? I want to hear this motherfucking record without fucking reverb. Yeah, I agree with you with one exception. I'm going to put an asterisk next to a Waiting on You All where the reverb to me is part of what makes that song so weird and cool. I mean, th- if you want... Uh, awaiting a new wall without reverb. The Bangladesh version is nice and clean. Yeah. But it stands with the uh, All Things Must Pass version, which is so, it almost makes it more ethereal because of all the reverb. But yes, I totally agree with you. And in fact, let's start this conversation by saying there was supposed to be a 50th anniversary reissue of this that was remixed for the first time. This has been on CD by my count three times. The original CD issue in the late 80s, which was a disaster. In fact, the companion album to this, I call it a companion album, the Derek and the Dominoes Layla album. Yeah. Which is one of my fa- one of my favorite non-Beatles albums. To me, it's Clapton at his very best. Basically, the whole Derek and the Dominoes band is on this this album. Yes. Both albums have suffered forever, especially in the age of digital transfers, of having terrible mixes. They finally remastered All Things Must Pass. They did it once in 2001, which George oversaw, but they didn't demix it. They just kind of cleaned it up a bit and added some bonus tracks. Then in 2014, another digital remaster. This album needs the Giles Martin, Sam Ockel full remix treatment, and we should have gotten it this year, and I don't understand why one of the most important rock albums ever emi universal calderstone whatever the fuck you want to call it danny and olivia missed out on this opportunity i don't get it yeah i don't either but uh, you know it's not too late they can always they can just do it whenever the hell they want and so yeah you're right maybe they'll do that maybe we'll get that in our lifetime um i just want to throw out a few more people on murderers row here that who played on this record eric clapton guitar uh, basically, so the Derek and the Dominoes band, like you were saying, which is basically Eric Clapton, uh, Jim Gordon on drums. Jim Gordon played on everything, by the way. Like if you've ever heard that uh, incredible bongo band sampled on uh, a lot of early hip hop from Apache, that's Jim Gordon. But he played on things like Pet Sounds, Classical Gas, that song by uh, Mason Williams, a fun little Grammy award-winning instrumental. Pretzel Logic, your favorite. M- Mason Williams is where we get all our wallpaper <laughs> and our paint. He played in Pretzel? Yeah, he, yeah, he's the drummer on Pretzel Logic. I didn't know that. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a weird Steely Dan guy, so that's cool to know. I didn't yeah. know that. Carl Rader on bass. So basically the Derek and the Dominoes band. Uh, Bobby Keys, Jim Price on the horns. Ringo played on this, as well as Alan White. Mal Evans played percussion. Billy Preston on keys. Klaus Vorman on bass. Uh, a lot of keyboard players, Gary Wright, Gary Brooker, um, also the band Badfinger. Peter Frampton played on this. Gary Newman of Cars <laughs> did not play in this album. <laughs> They're in my car, and I'm here in my car in Cars. Okay, Gary. Two-play army. I love Gary. You know, he's a pilot. <laughs> is he really? Yeah. Or is he working at the pilot gas station down, down the road at this point? No shame in that, by the way. Any job in this economy is a good job. I worked at Road Pilot on the overnights when I was 18. And uh, yeah, I got ripped off by a couple of guys for $50. Anyway. Really? <laughs> 
Did you report it? Was that Unsolved Mysteries? <laughs> Robert Steck came to interview me, but I failed the failed the audition on that. <laughs> I, thought, I thought Robert Stack was coming. It was Robert Stigwood who was really sad about the Sgt. Pepper film. <laughs> Tied it together. Uh, and Ginger Baker played on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Roy Cooper. Uh, excuse me, Ray Cooper, who is a percussionist who played with George. He was playing with George for the 30 years that followed. He was part of George's Japan tour in the early 90s. Yeah. And Dave Mason from you know Traffic and, right. of course, uh, who had the great, there's only you and me and we just disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I almost, that's all I got. <laughs> Uh, and then George did all the backing vocals, which he called the George O'Hara Smith Singers. Mm-hmm. And then a guy named John uh, Barham did the uh, orchestral arrangements. Later played drums in Zeppelin. He's still around, right? <laughs> what happened to him? I haven't read the news in a while. How's Keith Moon? Uh, they're all dead. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, again, full circle, the Who is way better with Zach Starkey. They're better with Zach Starkey than they were with, no offense, with Kenny Jones. You know, Kenny Jones was Kenny Jones. Yeah, not a great, that Kenny Jones is one of the reasons those early 80s Who albums suffer a little bit because the writing had become a little more flaccid. It was, yeah. you could tell it was Townsend wanting to do his own solo stuff. Yeah, and, uh, basically yeah. those are Townsend solo records with Daltrey on it. Yeah. yeah. So there's also a lot going on in George's personal life during the recording of this. Obviously the yeah. Beatles have just broken up and he's finally free to unleash all these songs. He had like 30 songs saved up. But at the same time, his mother is dying of cancer that summer of 70. And meanwhile, Eric Clapton has become infatuated with his wife, Patty, and basically kind of starts up a a heroin habit because he can't cope with the guilt of that. And George is kind of indifferent about the whole thing. You know, because George is cheating on Patty as well. Yeah, by right. The way, there yeah. was like a French model involved, and then who else? He's yeah. he's a beetle who could have kind of anything he wants. Yeah, yeah, and then he's also moved into this this new estate, this Friar Park, which is insane. It's this it's crazy hundred and twenty room mansion with turrets, and there's ponds and caves and tunnels and. But it's also in like disrepair. It took months to get in there. And there's Hare Krishnas living there. There's all these weeds built up, and the Hare Krishnas were using World War II era flamethrowers. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a sight. Like, yeah, man. So it's it's this this album is a whole scene, man. Well, and just to give a little more context, 1970, the 50th anniversary of Let It Be, I think was May. Uh, McCartney, yeah. the first McCartney solo album was April. Plastic Ono Band was December. This was November. Some of the most important records in Beatle world history are from 1970, a year where the breakup was made official. It kicked off a new decade. And uh, George played, and some of the beginnings of this record can be traced to George playing guitar on Instant Karma. Right. George, and, right, because that's where he met Phil. Yep. And that's how that came about. And that's when they decided to make the album together. And, you know, it. I, I went back to some of my bootlegs, the, the River Rhine tapes of the bootleg series I have, where you can hear George demoing All Things Must Pass with the Beatles. Um. I think what it was, isn't it a pity? Uh, no, uh, uh, 
Let It Down is on there, one of the great songs in the album, and you can just hear John and Paul disinterested because at that point, I mean, the song All Things Must Pass, the title track of the album, is one of the most important and great songs, not just by the uh, Beatle, but ever written. And the Beatles said, John and Paul said, no, you've, you've, you've got your songs on the White Album. You've got your songs on uh, Let It Be and Abbey Road. And it turned out, of course, Abbey Road, the two songs George contributed are arguably the very best songs in that album. Yeah. I don't think it's unfair. With all due respect to the McCartney medley and with the Lennon fragments and come together, I think Here Comes the Sun and something are what that album hangs its hat on. Yeah, I would agree. I have a differing opinion about the title track of this triple album, but really? let's save it for when we go track by track. Do you want to? Yeah, should we just dig into yeah, it? Yeah, Untitled Beatles podcast continues after this. <laughs> oh, fuck, we don't have any fucking no, sponsors. No, God yet. damn it. <laughs> Fine. No, it's, a two, it's still a two-person operation here, TJ. <laughs> One and a half. You're doing so much more work than me. <laughs> Thank you for doing all that work, by the way. For what it's worth, I get oh, yeah. off of these podcasts and I tell my wife what a great time I had and then I nap. <laughs> yeah, and I spend two days editing. No. <laughs> yeah, but, here, but here's the beauty of it. Uh, have you heard of Jewish reparations? Are you familiar with the goddamn Holocaust? All right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> I hope my rabbi's not listening. <laughs> I don't think I have a rabbi. Let's plow into the album and get into this because you have a different take on All Things Must Pass. There's so many songs. We're going to try to do this. If you like Roots and Schindler's List, this podcast should be similar in length. So let's. That's what she said. Let's go ahead and do and go song by song because there's a lot. This album to me gets an A minus, not an A because of how it concludes and the fat at the end of this, which is one of the re. I yeah. will say the yeah. fat at the end of All Things Must Pass is one of the reasons I've never loved jam bands. I get into this record yeah. uh, on an old vinyl copy, and I have one of the rarest things I have on vinyl, Tony, is I have a 1983 Rainbow Capital pressing of this which is just the one I bought in stores. It must have been when I was in sixth, seventh grade or my parents got it for me. Right. And they made they made and sold so few copies that it's one of those pressings because there's millions on Apple. Yeah. And then I think there was the a Purple Capital reissue, but the one with the rainbow uh, logo, like there's all the price guides and stuff say that it's super valuable because by the mid-80s, people weren't rushing out to buy this album as someone getting into the Beatles, I got it. So the copy that I grew up listening to actually is, that's what's going to send my kid to college. You know what I mean? <laughs> 85 bucks for my copy of All Things Must Pass. <laughs> but so th this is an album that I've loved forever. And that last album is one of the reasons why I have no patience for jam bands. We'll get into it at, at the very end. But let's yeah. start with All Things Must Pass, the album, and go track by track, my friend. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, it opens up real mellow, huh? I'd have you any time which is a song that he uh, co-wrote with Dylan. Let me in here I know I've been So, right. It should also be mentioned starting at the end of 68, 
he was kind of hanging out with Dylan and he was hanging out up in upstate New York with the band and just yeah. being a musician and writing and co-writing with Bob Dylan, which is like, wow. And he and Bob like connected on this other level in a way that he couldn't connect with John. I think they both were kind of these like outsiders that saw things a little differently than the rest. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. In fact, Blonde on Blonde was the only Western LP that George brought to India with him. Wow. And a great album. Yeah. And so this is a song about friendship. It has kind of a funny time signature. This whole album, I I dig his songwriting because it's not like confined to the prisons of fours and eights, you know, um, most stuff's in four, four, but he, you know, there's like little cut measures and added measures and it's, it's meandering at times in a way that I like. Which he was hinting at in Here Comes the Sun. That's one of the great things about that song and why that's it's so many Beatles songs could be cheesy in other people's hands, but it's got the da 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 you know, it's got all that kind of cool rhythmic stuff that George was just really I wonder if the if the sitar influence in Indian music helped infuse in him not needing to commit to kind of Western measures and Western beats and, and West End girls. George was a huge <laughs> Pet Shop Boys fan. In a Western town in Denon Mills. No patience for that. Let's make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> if there was an 80s song, that was, that uh-huh. was it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is a, to me, it's a, it's a peculiar album opener, but it, I think it was also inspired the way uh, the big pink by the band opens up with yes. tears of rage. It, it doesn't open up with a big, like my sweet Lord, for instance, the big hit, it opens up quietly and you kind of create, you know, it's like you're sneaking into this record or something. Yeah. And it's got a, I don't know the breakdown on who wrote the majority of the lyrics, but it's very, it's not just Dylan pastoral, like in terms of the music, the lyrics are very Dylan. All I have is yours. All you see is mine. I'm glad to hold you in my arms. I'd have you anytime. It's got kind of a very Dylan feel and it's cool that he chose to open this with, with a song that isn't a, a burner or a pot boiler, as George Martin called it, but that's kind of reflective and very band influence. His time in upstate New York with with Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm and those guys changed him. Totally. After the, what did he call the era with the Beatles uh, around then? The, 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 the winter, winter of, of discontent. discontent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coming off filming Let It Be at, at, at those ice cold Twickenham studios where Paul's yelling at him about, well, and hey Jude, you wanted to go back. I've heard Paul McCartney <laughs> tell the Hey Jude story a thousand times. And Paul is clearly, Paul Paul knows he's the asshole, but he's too good to say he's the asshole. He's like, I just, I knew George was good. It was just time for different things. Like, All right, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah this oh, it's it's a great kind of plaintive opening and to me it sets the tone for this pastoral record that is very band-esque but with the touch and sensibilities of a beetle fused with bob dylan it's exquisite yeah what was it the music of mountaintops and you know pastoral pastures or something yeah. like that is what's uh the critics called it yeah i got half of it right uh yeah, it's an interesting song. It's I will say it's not my favorite on the record. I but I I respect it as a as an opener. Well, one of my favorite bands, uh, Wilco, occasionally opens with a song you're not expecting an album to open with, like Art of Almost. And there there's, it, it I have respect for an artist with the confidence to open with one that makes people gonna go, huh? 
versus, oh, yeah. fuck yeah, I'm in. I mean, compare this. We did Revolver on our last show. Revolver's four years before this. That's compare crazy. this song to Taxman. Taxman grabs you by the throat yeah. the second it opens. This song, you kind of give a hug to almost. You're, <laughs> you're invited in. Well, yeah. And in fact, when I listen to this, anybody who I'm with, I give a hug to. It's tougher <laughs> to do in 2020 because of the pandemic and some of the legal charges that have been brought against me. All of which are bullshit. And I'm going to prove it. Can we get into that now? Should we save that for later? Well, we'll speaking later of on. legal charges, yeah, the next song <laughs> up. Segway, baby! <laughs> I went to radio school. <laughs> yeah, Columbia School of Broadcasting. <laughs> By the way, all, uh, to all of our young listeners, <laughs> it is a great time to get into broadcast media. Do print, do broadcast, follow your heart, don't get a real job, get in the radio industry. <laughs> Tony, back to you. So the next song is My Sweet Lord. Uh, the big hit, the first single off this record, but it did get him into some legal trouble because it... Too closely resembled He's So Fine, a hit by the Chiffons, written by uh, Ronnie Mack. He's a soft-spoken Yeah. What do you think of all that? Um, uh, we need to explain to people who are even younger than us that My Sweet Lord was one of the biggest hits of all time. Despite the legal challenges, I'm, I'm forgetting how many weeks it was number one, but that was, according to everything you read, that was the song that was, it was, it became a Christmas standard in 1970, Tony. That song was played from everything I've read nonstop on radio in the Christmas season when everyone's listening to music, then everyone rushes out to buy this very expensive, by the way, for its time record. Right. This record came, the original vinyl is in this gorgeous, it feels important. It's heavy. It's three records in this huge box set. Yeah. And the box set is beautiful with the gold lettering on the spine, but the black and white cover. So there's all these different kind of things going on because it's plain and fancy at the same time. Underrated musical from the 50s, by the way, plain and fancy. People went to Haran Camp, know the reference to plain and fancy. How do you raise a barn? There's a song there called How Do You Raise a Barn. No Beatles podcast ever has done a song from fucking plain and fancy. I want to make that very clear. Yeah, you hear that something about the Beatles? I do know something about the Beatles and Plain and Fancy. I love those guys. I'm just talking shit. Um, but My Sweet Lord has so few actual lyrics. I'm looking at the lyric sheet right now. It is simple. It is spiritual. And I understand that it's subconsciously ripped off from the Chiffons. He's so fine. None of that diminished how powerful the song was in the early 70s and how it remains probably his signature solo song. One that he even wrote a song on the album uh, 33 and a third, I think, called This Song, mocking the lawsuit about about this uh, particular <laughs> tune. So yeah, it, never, it, it never really escaped him. It's very George. But um, this is probably his signature song. And even though it's a little too religious for me, I know you're not a huge Let It Be guy because the religious overtones of that song. Yeah. This song has similar religious -y stuff for me. Um, in terms of it, it's difficult, all the Hare Krishna and, and all that, but I understand and respect its place in pop music history and in George's 
purity of spirituality. Getting the song out feels, as a listener, cathartic. It's a great song. It's catchy as hell. It incorporates elements of both Hindu and Christian religions. So in that way, I I like it. It's basically, you know, Krishna and Hallelujah are basically saying the same thing. And I know what you mean, like, about the whole religion thing like especially when you get deep into the Hare Krishna thing and you're like what what are what am I saying <laughs> you know but I also went you know like I can also recite like you know on the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures he ascended and had his seated at the right hand of the father he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead you know like I could do that because I've been brainwashed by the Catholic Church having to have go there every week for the first whatever 15 16 17 years of my life. So, but I never I never knew what I was saying. I was just saying this like this string of vowels and consonants to this rhythm with the crowd. Anyway, so that's that. <laughs> <laughs> you you slipped in a George reference by you were brainwashed by the media, brainwashed by the press. You were brainwashed. brainwashed, yeah. Yeah, man, his last record. Uh-huh. But yeah, so I did look into like, so what yeah, what are we singing at the end there? And it's it's basically it's it's an ancient Vedic prayer. I offer homage to my guru, who is as great as the creator Brahma, the maintainer Vishnu, the destroyer Shiva, and who is the very energy of God. So if you know who those guys are, they sound pretty together. <laughs> Check them out. I think they've got a record on <laughs> Electro. <laughs> By the way, I, as proof of, of George Harrison's enduring popularity in the 80s, the band Night Ranger, pretty good rock band, <laughs> scored a hit with Sister Krishna. Right. <laughs> you had me, got me for two seconds. <laughs> Sister Krishna, oh, the time has come. No, isn't that Ario? I, th- I want to say that's Ario, right? It, I forget. Listen, I won't work with someone who confuses Night Ranger with Ario. <laughs> Ario had another religious song. But so I keep on loving Jews. <laughs> All right. Enough, enough of that. Enough, let's get back to the, the vaudeville lyrics. Kane's coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> Better than Herman Cain coming for me. He gone. <laughs> Uh, oh, you know what's funny is he Trump killed him at a rally and nobody gave a fuck. Isn't that funny about Herman Cain? Sign of the times, they call that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, yeah. instant karma's gonna get uh, you. Stay, stay safe out there, yeah, y'all. Please. But um, so anyway, yeah. So this song ended up in litigation. I mean, we can get into that. I always get kind of bored with litigation. Long story short, the estate for Ronnie Mac or whoever owned actually it wasn't even Ronnie Mac anymore. I forget who owned it, but. Alan Klein ended up buying the rights to He's So Fine. Beware of Abco. Beware of Abco. And then he tried to sell He's So Fine back to George Harrison to, like, get him out of this lawsuit or whatever. And anyway, the, it ended up costing him, like, $1.6 million, um, which went down to, like, 500000 or something like that, but... It scared him into like writing for a while. He was like, I, you know, because he he really did not intend. He actually thought he was referencing "Oh Happy Day," which mm-hmm. was you know out of copyright. You could you could do that. But uh, anyway, it's a great song. There's a 2000 version of it. Yeah. He re-recorded it as part of the reissue 
uh, when uh, one of the last things he did when he was alive uh, was supervise the reissue of this album for, I think came out in 2001, but he worked on it in obviously 2000. And uh, he intentionally sought out to change the melody around enough to not get in the same legal trouble. That's why the he sings kind of a different melody a lot of the time. Interesting. Is, and it's, it's sad because there's a few late, the last George Harrison songs recorded, one is about, we're going to d- d- take a detour for 10 seconds here. The most obscure George Harrison song probably was recorded for a Jules Holland compilation CD. Jules Holland, the lead singer of Squeeze. I think he's the lead singer, maybe the piano player. And uh, Jules Holland had a TV show in the UK forever where people would play with him. Well, he had an album called Jules, Jules Holland's Big Band, and George has a song on there called You Can Lead a Horse to Water, and he sounds... Like he's dying. It is a very, very sad, sad kind of sounding George Harrison. And the My Sweet Lord 2000, the 2000s in parentheses, kind of gives a hint of what was happening to him health wise. He sounds very ill and it's hard to listen to for me, to be honest. I'm getting a chill talking about it. Yeah. Well, what's even sadder, though, is that the Jewel supermarket used it to sell, like, produce that weekend. <laughs> nah, you can say what you want about Jewels, but what about Dominic's libs? How come you liberals don't shop at Dominic's no more? <laughs> yeah, it's a conspiracy. That's what it's it is. It's a conspiracy. Trump would have won if Dominic's was still around. How come How come Jerry Reinsdorf's a Jew? All right, you fucking <laughs> Chicago shitbags. What's wrong with you people? From snacking treats to main course meats, Jewel has it all. The next song on... <laughs> the next song on the record is... Uh, this, I think, is my favorite on the record. Wawa. Wawa. I love this song. You're giving me a Wawa. Yeah. I've read many stories about this. I, I, I'm sure you've done the deep dive, but I I always thought this was a commentary about Paul McCartney, and it, I think it's a commentary about the Beatles in general giving him a headache. Yeah, yeah. Wawa, is, it's, it's a reference to the guitar pedal of the same name, but it's also, it's code for a headache. And yeah, so yeah, he wrote this song January 10th of 1969, uh, right? What, Twickenham was 69, yes. Yeah. And that's what's funny too, not to go off here, who cares, but like tw- okay. Twickenham was so close to the White Album. I always think of them as so separate and like so far removed, but like they basically took like two weeks off or whatever, like they took the holiday off after releasing the White Album and then they went right back to work, you know? Like I, there's a part of me that thinks like, God, if you guys had just taken one more month off, maybe it would have been better. Yeah, but I think the recording of the White Album, where what's the famous George Martin quote, where they were in four di- four different studios at four different times. Like I think I think the White Album itself and coming back from India is kind of what really began to separate them when they realized the White Album was the first time they all realized I want to be a solo artist. So I don't think there was any coming back from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so cut to January tenth, nineteen sixty nine, and George gets into a fight with Paul and basically the band and. He's tired of hearing his songs get rejected or just who cares. And he he walks out after lunch. He walks out and he writes this song. And uh, yeah, there's something about it. I think what I like the most about it, it's just the strange, surprising chord change. Mm-hmm. Starts in E with the riff, but there's that that passing chord of an A flat, which is just like, yeah, I love that. That's the kind of stuff that 
whatever <laughs> turns me on or whatever. Like, I just love that. I, I'm, I'm surprised because I love the song too. I'm surprised to hear you say that because this song to me is a, a, a reverb nightmare in a great way. Oh, it is. Tons of, tons of reverb on this. And this song, this is like, this song sounds like every band of the seventies playing on it. And that horn section. Yeah. It's, it, I, I love it because it's so thick and I love it because it's so dense it feels like a hard rock song. It feels like George doing hard rock. Yeah. And it's, yeah, let's talk about production then. Yes. So that's what's marring it for me. And this is, again, yeah, I already said it, but this is why I don't put this record on that much. I, I can't stand the production on it. I really wish they he had just taken Glenn Johns with him instead of Phil Spector because he'd been working with Glenn Johns, man. And Glenn Johns was about to discover like how to mic drums with Who's Next. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what if this record sounded like Who's Next? Holy shit, you know? We don't need 45 guitar players, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, maybe the guys in Badfinger wouldn't have hanged themselves if they didn't play on this goddamn record. You know, <laughs> you've obviously never heard Delaney and Bonnie's cover of "Behind Blue Eyes." <laughs> Is that for real? Because I haven't. Are you doing a no, bit? No, oh, no, okay. no, no, no. Just, I just, I tried to pull the most obscure reference. I, I do. Favorite song of that album is "Going Mobile." I just got to say that's my favorite song. But who's next? I love it. Um. But yeah, so that said, my favorite version of this song is the live version from Concert of Bangladesh where he's got the backup singers. It's really great. There's another great version of this. This is the finale for 2003's Concert for George. Did I just make up the year? People who listen to the show know I make up years a lot. But (laughs) whenever Clapton did the Concert for George Harrison, I think it was in 03, this is the big finale um, with everybody playing. And uh, that's a great version of it, too, despite George not being on it. But yes, the Bangladesh version is definitive without question. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I dig this song. It's great. It's speaking about the Beatles. We're all, we're fans, so I'm interested in that. You know what I mean? And can we talk for a second how the album, so you start with a kind of uh, bucolic, I'll have you any, I'd have you anytime. Then you go to My Sweet Lord, which rises up even more. Then track three, you're getting punched in the face with this heavy rock sound of wah-wah. Yeah. The running order on this album is impeccable. It's oh, impeccable. yeah. Yeah, the running order is brilliant it's perfect yeah what do you think about the uh solo electric guitar demo of this on that because uh beware of abco is <laughs> yeah. one of those bootlegs that i i got my hands on god i want to say the i was out of college maybe early 2000s maybe and that beware of abco record changed me uh it's one of those seminal beatles moments in my life of hearing these songs done not acoustic but kind of solo demo for the first time and just hearing him do the the electric guitar solo is that's a whole other listening experience it's different but it's just as satisfying to me yeah no that beware of abco bootleg is great yeah. it's it's basically that thing i always <laughs> wish had happened is that rick rubin produced one of the solo beatles right, right. that's base it's right he did it so I, good on you, Rick Rubin. <laughs> so, but I will say like the unfortunate thing about Wawa on that is that there's a bass player that's trying to learn the song while, you know, it's like a cold read and he's like all over the place. <laughs> but it's kind of cool to me. I, I, I kind of like, it's almost like a cousin to only a Northern song where if the chords are going wrong. <laughs> you don't see me crying. And then we get into the first version, uh, closing side one of the six-sided disc. Uh, isn't it a pity? And this is the double A on My Sweet Lord. A couple, a couple, I think Australia and somewhere else, this was the more popular of the two songs uh, on radio. Yeah. What do you think of this one? It's, it's a classic, and I love the way they kind of sample Hey Jude a bit in it, too. It's kind of a weird... It's kind of a weird homage to Hey Jude. What do you mean? I don't hear that. Yeah, there, I don't know. There, there's some na-na-na-na's at the end. Or maybe at, at the very least, I'm pretty sure they're on the original recording, but they're super prominent on the Live in Japan album where uh, one of the backup singers for George and Clapton's band is doing the full-fledged na-na-na-na's. Oh, just doing, doing it. Is pity, <laughs> which is great. But yeah, I mean, I love the the lyrical content of the song. I love the spiritual content of the song. Isn't it a pity? Isn't it a shame how we break each other's hearts and cause each other pain? It is is such a reflective comment. And it's very George in that it's not a call to action. It's commentary. In John Lennon's yeah. hand, in John Lennon's hands, it's a call to action. In Paul's hands, it's Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> 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 la, 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 la. 
we got to do that one too. The back-to-back McCartney give Ireland back to the Irish and Mary had a little lamb singles. One of my favorite things in the McCartney discography, but yeah, I, I, I love, I love, isn't it a pity? And I think my favorite version, this might be here. Uh, not hearsay. What's the term? Heresy. Heresy. This might be Harrison heresy. Um, <laughs> is the Harris. live in Japan version is um, that's my definitive favorite in this because it's got a life and a Christmas to it that I've always just loved with some of Clapton's best guitar playing I think on record. But yeah, it's a gorgeous song. It's a beautiful song, and it has the kind of stately version of of Hey Jude of an anthem, and I respect the fuck out of it for that reason. What do you think of this one? I like it. Yeah, it's it's not my favorite, but I I respect it. Like you say, I, I like the angle it's coming at. It, it's coming from an empathetic angle. So it's about a relationship kind of breaking down. It's a down moment in a relationship. Isn't it a pity that this is happening? I wrote this quote down that it's karmic in some way where he, he said, if I feel let down, then I must be letting the other down. You know, so it's like you say, it's not, he's not accusing anyone. He's just saying, okay, this thing is happening and... Let's get through this, you know? Right. Uh, maybe he's not saying let's get through this, but he's, you know, he's not laying blame or whatever is what I'm trying to say. And he, you know, this song he had back in 66, he presented yeah. this on Revolver and Pepper. And I get why they're, it's not on those albums. And I also think it would be a very different version because those were pre-Hey Jude and this song clocks in at like seven minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, I, I wonder what an early version of this song would have sounded like on either of those records. I don't know. Well, on the Dave Dexter, uh, All Things Must Pass, <laughs> side two opens with, I'll get you. <laughs> I'm never going to tire of that bit. 50 minutes in, we got our, we finally got the Dave Dexter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. George, is George even singing on this? <laughs> yeah, I like this song. I don't think we need two versions, but or two virgins. Uh-huh. Or two virgins. You don't need that. Nor, nor do you need life with the lions. There's a lot. There's a lot of things you don't need. All on Zapple. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think that's one of the reasons I put Plastic Ono Band above this is because Plastic Ono Band is as direct as All Things Must Pass is expansive. Yeah, And some of the excess in this album, there's something about Plastic Ono Band. It's the most direct and honest, and we'll save, obviously, the talk for that when we do the episode, but yeah. there's a directness to that album that's always cemented that as the number one solo Beatles album because nothing else comes close to being that direct and raw. This album is loaded with excess. Most of it works. You don't need the reprise of this or quote, quote unquote version two. Then we flip the record over and we get uh, another hit. What is life? I wrote down pure joy. What a go gr- ahead, go I'm, ahead. So, I'm sorry. I did not mean to interrupt you, but I was just going to say what a great side opener. This, 
from the George Martin open with a, with a potboiler school would have been an album opener if the Beatles had made this album. Yeah. This is an album opener. It is used in Goodfellas, too. Everyone thinks yeah. what's so funny, good for Scorsese, who later did the George Harrison Living the Material World documentary. Yes. In the same movie, whether consciously or not, he's got this song and the Layla piano solo. And since that Layla album is so related to All Things Must Pass, it, there's a cool kind of Beatle connection to Goodfellas I've always loved. Totally. Yeah. 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 This I've always liked this song. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, pure joy. I don't know. I hear this song and I, I feel like I'm a kid again or whenever I first heard this, you know, and it, 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 it and I will say this is where the Phil Spector thing works. Like I hear this on AM radio. You know what I mean? Like to me, this song is a radio hit and this is where the Phil Spector thing works. I, I sure I'd love to hear the version without reverb, but in this case it works. Uh, he wrote this while driving, <laughs> exclamation point, parentheses. <laughs> Ampersand. Ampersand. <laughs> while driving to uh, when he was producing Billy Preston's uh, record that year. We both do music and I compose music. And 20 years ago, I was a bike messenger and I didn't have a cell phone and none of us did 20 years ago. And I would have a tune stuck in my head all day while I'm on my bike and I would have to like kind of just keep it going in my head till I could get home and get to a piano to try and figure out what it was, you know? So it's cool. It's, it's one of those songs that's in your head. It is total joy. It was a huge hit. This was backed with, I think, was Applescruft's the B-side of this? I think so. Yes, I think you're right. Yes. The B-side of an Applescruft's. And what a glorious... That's one of those moments where I wish I'd been alive when the single was released to put this on and then flip it over in her Applescruft's because yeah. just a perfect kind of dichotomy of two musical ideas that don't work together but so work together. I, you know, one of the things where I, I don't mean to sound like the old guy that I am, and you're an old soul, Tony. I'm an old soul. We're both <laughs> older than our mid to late 40s would indicate, I think. But the beauty of 45s, and I listen to 45s still. I got a, I, I've got a turntable, and I've been collecting 45s forever. The urgency and directness of putting on an A side and flipping it over, putting on a B side. So many artists make B sides that fucking suck. <laughs> They're not good enough for the album. They're the crappy song from the album, whatever. This is the Beatles, for whatever reason, solo and together, obviously, the B sides are almost as good as the A sides in almost every single case. And that includes <laughs> Paul McCartney's My Brave Face, where Flying to My Home <laughs> is the non album track B side and is the best song not on Flowers in the Dirt. We'll save that one. I just had to bring that up. Yeah, I would probably like, I, I don't like that song. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I would like the B better. <laughs> now, the reissue that came out had a instrumental version of What is Life. That adds, yeah. had like a kooky uh, piccolo trumpet and oboe part on there that I guess Harrison thought were too busy or something. But it's fun to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird. It was one of the bonus tracks on um, that 2001 reissue. Um, and also, by the way, those bonus tracks were standardized for the official 2014 reissue. So if you didn't buy that 01 reissue, they're all and the um, 
the end of disc one of the 2014. Yes. Yes. Which if you're streaming this record, that's how they play. <laughs> which sucks because it throws the flow off a little bit. It totally throws the flow off. Uh, also, if you listen to that instrumental version, there's a bum bass note uh, twice. At, uh, at I counted it at 329 and 347. So listen for a bass player is, keeps going to the wrong part. You should email Phil Spector. He totally won't kill you. <laughs> <laughs> We're in trouble, Richard. You don't know it, but I do. He looks so creepy in that Scorsese documentary on this. Yeah, well, he went bonkers. Something yeah, happened to that dude, man. Oh, the tweeting birds and the. the <laughs> <laughs> well, something was going on with him. Yeah, somewhere like I mentioned earlier, but halfway through the, the recording this album, he fell down at Abbey Road and broke his arm. And then went back to L.A. and was like, you know, <laughs> giving them like handwritten notes, like more reverb on <laughs> run of the mill. <laughs> <laughs> was was this the one or was it might have been Art of Dying where he said he didn't want the, the busy horns and George was like, I uh, know it's a big part of the song. It might have been Art of Dying, which we'll get to. But I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, there were some notes that George took and others he dismissed. So good on George. Just like any good improviser. <laughs> I get it, Mick. All right. I know. I, I know. I, I should dial the character down, but it's getting laughs. Getting laughs. Um, We're doing Pictionary. So, uh, you know, the next song on this, on side two, is a straight-up Dylan cover. One notably covered, one of the only songs ever to be covered by George Harrison and Olivia (laughs) Newton-John. And it's, if not for you, and with all due respect to this, I know this is is offensive. The George, uh, excuse me, the Bob Dylan version, which I think is on New Morning. I might be getting this wrong. You're right. Yeah. I prefer the Bob Dylan version of this to the George version of this. There's a different kind of sprightliness to the Dylan version that I just love. Yeah. That I don't think George hits quite as high on this record. Well, Dylan was deep into country, and I think George was dabbling in it. And that, yeah, that's that's what's funny about this record. It's like a Hindu country record. <laughs> that's right. Which, <laughs> other know? than the Oak Ridge Boys, had never been done. <laughs> Giddy up, boom, pop, A Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> The Oak Ridge Boys, Ravi Shankar, One Night Only. <laughs> Can you imagine? Budokan. Oh, Budokan, there you yeah, go. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's a minor Bob Dylan song. It's a slight Bob Dylan song that clearly George loved. I want to throw out here for one second, this is unimportant for this conversation, but one of the things about that concert for George that Clapton organized after George's death that's mystified me is Bob Dylan's absence. Given how close they were for so long, and given that the Wilburys weren't that weren't that much before George Harrison's death, for Bob Dylan to not be a part of that concert for George, I'm sure there's things online that say why I've yet to see them. But I was horrified that you have Tom Petty and Jeff Lynn and Paul McCartney and Ringo and Gary Wright and Billy Preston, and you don't have Bob Dylan, especially after it was George, for those who don't know, and everybody listening to this fucking podcast knows, I'm going to insult anybody's intelligence, but it was George who helped kind of bring Dylan back to the live stage. Yeah, Isla White, yeah. And and, and uh, Dylan's role in the Bangladesh show. Bob Dylan got a whole side of that Bangladesh album. They had to work out all the rights with Columbia and with Apple at the time. Right, right. So 
I know their relationship. I know they loved each other. The Wolverines is one of the great projects of any Beatle ever, ever accomplished outside of the Beatles. Uh, but I was horrified that Dylan wasn't a part of that big uh, George Harrison tribute that everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why. I know nothing. I can only speculate that maybe it was Dylan's choice. I don't know. I don't know. It, it must have been. There's no way Eric Clapton and Danny Harrison and Olivia would have uh, would have chosen to not have Bob Dylan there. So maybe we'll get to the bottom of that at some point. But this song is fine. The song is pleasant. I prefer the original Dylan version. And that steel guitar is that is that Pete Drake playing the steel guitar on a lot of this record? Yeah, yeah, I, Nashville I think it's guy. Pete Drake. Yeah, Nashville guy who was, I think, a big part of the Nashville Skyline album. I think that yeah. Dylan did with Johnny Cash. Yes, he was. Um, yes. Uh, the steel guitar makes the song to me, but again, it's not it's not bad. I just prefer the Bob Dylan take. How about you? Yeah, I think I prefer Dylan's version too. Just makes sense. It's his song, you know. And it's yeah, it's interesting that's a, that there's a cover on this record too, you know. Yeah, I think George's first cover on a record since um, Roll Over Beethoven. I think. I think so. Wait, what? What about what was it? Everybody's trying to be my baby. Oh, you're right. That's Beatles for sale. You're totally right. And then what was what was on Help? That was Act Naturally and all that, right? Well, that was yeah. Re- yeah so. But Help, he's saying uh, you like me too much, and uh, yeah, that, that was, was his. his yeah. He started doing his his songs. Yeah. I know we left out "Don't Bother Me" last week. We know about that song, so don't add us. And a great one. Uh, it's a it's a great song. It's one of the darkest early Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah. So we we talked about Isle of Wight and Dylan's comeback to the stage, and uh, this next song, Behind That Locked Door, is about that. It was a message of encouragement to Dylan about getting back on stage. And uh, again, it has that country sound, Pete Drake with the the, the pedal steel. Um, yeah, this is where it's like, oh yeah, this is a wild record. Suddenly yeah. he's country. <laughs> Suddenly this this is where, like the opening song, it becomes a band record. It becomes yeah. a song from music from Big Pink. I like this sound a lot, and uh, I know I know I'm trolling you a little bit here, but like Elvis did a, a, a marathon Nashville session in 1970 um, that incorporates all those guys that played on Ringo's Boku of Blues and Pete Drake, and <laughs> the music sounds like that. I'd like to tell you that uh, occasionally during the show I will have to come over here and get some wawa. Old man saying wawa. And I got some stuff here called Gate Aid. <laughs> Looks like it's already been used to me, I'll tell you. So uh, there's a part of me that really thinks you would dig Elvis, 69, 70, when that, that era. But uh, I like that sound. I just wish the backing vocals on Suspicious Minds were mixed louder. <laughs> God damn it, somebody pot that channel down. Well, that was Chip's moment engineering that yeah. American Sound, nineteen sixty nine. I went to that recording studio recently. You know what it is? It's a it's a Dollar General, <laughs> or no? It, it's a dollar store. What, whichever one it is, U.S. Dollar or whatever the fuck they're called. 
whatever those grifty chains are. Oh, it's so sad. Those <laughs> chains fuck people because yeah. they make smaller versions of food for a dollar and it seems cheaper because they're a buck. But if you do the math and you spend two eighty for the same product, you get like three times more food. It's yeah. Oh the, yeah. Those chains are designed to to fuck people. Yeah, they're they're food deserts. Also, when you have a four year old, it's a great place to get balloons and bubbles. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that. We got, <laughs> we got that's a th- that's a great thing about the Untitled Beatles cast podcast we go from uh behind that locked door dylan to to the dollar from dylan to the dollar store <laughs> um, what dylan songs belong in the dollar store And then the following song is one of my favorite George Harrison songs, the way it's recorded, the way it's performed, those thick major sevenths. Yeah. Let it down to me. I, I went on a rabbit hole. I'd never done really research about the song until I knew we were doing this podcast. And the the way it's structured where the chorus is loud and blasty and the verses are kind of mellow and reflective I didn't realize how rare and unique that was. And it explained why I've always loved the song because it's a ballad and a hard rock song about sex. Yeah. All dressed up in one. This to me is just one of the great George Harrison songs ever made or performed. Yeah, this is a great song. Yeah, and like you say, it plays with dynamics. A lot of people credit this with like the Pixies, Nirvana, you know, quiet, loud, quiet, the uh, grunge thing. Quiet Riot. <laughs> <laughs> Slade, you know? yes, yeah, Slade, right? Slade was quiet, right? Without the hockey masks, <laughs> it's like when Kiss took their makeup off. I don't know. <laughs> This song, Let It Down, you were, I mean, to your, I, I joke, but obviously the Pixies, Nirvana, I mean, these are like seminal artists at the beginning of 90s grunge and 90s rock who were super influenced by the Beatles, which is one thing that's so cool. The, the whole Backbeat soundtrack is um, emerging grunge artists covering early Beatles covers. Right. I mean, there was a huge Beatles renaissance among the early grunge guys. And yeah, I think a lot of it can be traced back to this song too. So this was one of those songs that George presented to the Beatles during let it be. He wrote it in 68 and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Have you, I, I don't think I've actually heard the version where he's, you know, from the Nagra tapes or whatever, where he's been, where he plays it for them. Have you, have you heard it? I, I have heard it at Sloppy, and there's a couple of like hallmarky Paul, like trying to harmonize, trying to do weird vocal riff stuff in the back, and where Paul thinks he's helping, but he doesn't really care. 
because right. he's already thinking of writing classics like Corrine Acrore. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Paul. You're my favorite, but I'm going to call you out when I need to. I need That's to. what friends are for. <laughs> In good times and bad times. <laughs> It's a it's a good song. It's interesting that it's about sex. It's uh, it it and it's but it's also very George. You know, it's a very it's more sensual than sexual. You know, it it's a great one. And those major sevenths again just get me every time. The next song on it that side ends with another one of the great kind of another great George song. And this is one that I prefer the demo of. It's Run of the Mill. Yeah. And this one is a bit heavy, Phil Spectory. Yep. Whereas the demo is so light, and George is kind of finding his way. But both versions are beautiful. Run of the Mill is just a beautiful song. I agree. Definitely one of my favorites on this record. Um, yeah, it's about the disintegration of the Beatles and friendships and stuff. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's one of the, again, and it's the songwriting where he's not confined to you know four four rock structure, and so it has this like jaunty quality where the time is kind of jumpy, and the yeah the drummers have to kind of figure this one out a little bit. And and I and that's why I think I too prefer the acoustic demo because you know it's just the guitar and it makes more sense without a drummer trying to tell you where to dance. You know, or well, this song is like almost impossible to dance to. Yeah. <laughs> Dick Clark couldn't play it for shit. No, you, people would be colliding into each other on American Bandstand. I'd love to see that. I never forget the one Soul Train where they went from the OJs to the song. It was a really <laughs> <laughs> love train to run of the mill. <laughs> To, to your point about the breakup of the Beatles, um, as the days stand up on end, you got me wondering how I lost your friendship, but I see it in your eyes. I mean, that's him. He had been living with John and Paul and Ringo yeah. for over a decade. Yeah. It was all gone. Right. And what do you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in a real, yeah, he was at a crossroads, man. It's cool. It's cool what he did. It's cool that this thing came out. This is one of Olivia's favorite songs. I like the horn parts on it. I like that the, the, there's distinct trumpets on this song. Yeah. The horn parts are almost soulful on this. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I dig it. Good closer. Good closer for side two. Though I'm beside you, I can't carry the lane for you. I may decide to get out with your blessing where I carry on guessing. Will you leap? Will you make it up for you to reap it? Only you'll arrive at your own made end. With no one but yourself to be offended Chew that decides TJ, I'm realizing this is going to be a two-parter, man. Yeah, I'm busy. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll pick this... So we're going to have to continue... (laughs) We'll pick it up next week. We will pick this one up next week. Until then, be safe. Do the social distance thing. Wear a mask. Stay alive, please. Peace and love. Go fuck yourself. All right, Ringo, I get it. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. 